0: If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode
1: 185 Q&A. And this Q&A is going to cover Web3, TypeScript, new frameworks, and more bit of a packed episode here, so if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And uh, this, like I said, is a Q&A episode, so Mike took to Twitter uh, maybe a week and a half ago, week ago, something like that, and he asked for basically some questions, like hey, whatever you want us to address, let us know. So we have, I think it's a collection of four or five questions here. Uh, of uh, different uh, in, different, varying degrees of Web 3 to, you know, what framework do we use to, I don't know why it's different degrees of Web 3, but you know what I'm saying, a bunch of different topics. So let's jump right into it. First question, first question here uh, is by uh, a guest of the show or a former guest of the show, uh, Chaba Kissy. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. And he says on Twitter, uh, what do you think about Web 2 versus Web 3? And uh, how will the internet look? What will the internet look like in uh, the upcoming years? And um, there's actually an interesting comment here uh, that I'll mention by an Oliver Jumperts. Hopefully, again, I'm saying this correctly. And his tweet reads, one simple way to view the evolution of the web is web one, which was companies own the platform and the content and users are consumers. Web two is that companies own the platform and the content and users provide the content. And Web3, users own the platform and the content and users finally profit. So there's a little tidbit from Twitter, a little interesting comment. Um, I don't know if this was a comment on our uh, on our tweet or whether it wasn't. It wasn't.
2: I just I I, I follow Oliver and he has a ton of awesome little takes on Web3 right now. So I just found that I was like, I'm going to throw it in. It makes sense in this context.
1: Right. And I mean, if you're. Sitting there rolling your eyes saying like, oh, here comes this web three thing again. Or like, I have no idea what web one, two, three is. Like, I don't really get it. We're going to address that right here. So first of all, I want to say, and this is, I want, this is our opinion. But in my opinion, web three will not be replacing web two. They're going to coexist and probably influence each other throughout their lives. And just like how web one has influenced the web as well. But I think that we actually should briefly cover what web one, web two, and web three are. So we're all on the same page. Now, these definitions come largely from Investopedia, and I will include a link to the articles that I took from there, or that I read from there, uh, to get these little bits of information. So what is Web1? So Web1 is essentially the first version of the internet. And at a very high level, it's simple websites, very few web apps, uh, most of the pages are static and they're just served by servers. A lot of those servers are actually ISP like the ISP actually hosted a bunch of them maybe a couple of free web hosting services in there somewhere. And content creation wasn't really a big thing. There weren't selling laptops saying, you know, become a creator, and this laptop's going to be great for Photoshop. It was very much the content creation was very much in its infancy. And as a result of that, the internet, you know, really didn't have any platforms, didn't really have any web apps, didn't really have any uh, anything for creators to use. So it's not like, people were not out there painting and drawing and, you know, taking photos, and maybe even some people were uploading to their own personal sites. For the most part, content creation, again, was just in its infancy, especially online. And a lot of that was largely due to the fact that there was a sort of lack of tech there. There was a lack of of technology where people weren't really able to just sort of log into Facebook and then, you know, press upload photos and stuff like that. That sort of tech really didn't exist. It wasn't uh, mainstream, certainly, and it just wasn't around. So, That kind of transitions us into Web 2, which is what the current state of the internet largely is. And basically, we obviously have a lot more user-generated content, and there's a lot more usability for uh, end users when compared to Web 1. So people can log in and manage their finances. People can log in and post pictures. People can log in and literally edit pictures. People can uh, use what used to be full desktop apps uh, in the cloud so they can use, like, Word. They can use uh, email applications and all this stuff all in the cloud, they don't really need to have a desktop app, or if they do, it's for something very specific or for a preference, like if you prefer that. So ultimately, Web2 is less a technical definition and more, at least in my opinion, of how the internet is used. Uh, There's more information sharing, more interconnectivity, like I can quickly message Mike type of thing. Think about really social media platforms and web apps for productivity. Among uh, team and community members, a lot of uh, community, or a lot of um, communities are on social media, Twitter, Facebook, those type of things, and then you also have uh, interconnectivity among uh, sort of uh, isolated communities, meaning like teams on, uh, like like if you have a, a bunch of developers on a team and they're all commenting on stuff, maybe they use a cloud-based uh, chat or a cloud-based. Uh, a cloud based like a project management platform. And what that effectively does is, you know, it's isolated because you don't want everyone to know all your, your NDA stuff like, hey, the, the, the server password is, you know, you don't want to be yelling that. So, but regardless of which, there is a lot of that stuff can still be done in the web browser among these little communities like specific teams in a company. And then that will transition us into the big one that everyone's going to roll their eyes at and it hears about way too much uh, is <laughs> Web3. So Web3 is, you know, by and large still being figured out. And a lot of this stuff is based on theories or current developments and a lot of it realistically is probably going to get regulated or changed and this and that. So it, like, what I say here again is our opinion and a lot of it's from Investopedia as well. But remember that Web3 effectively is in its infancy and a lot of this is, can change and a lot of this uh, will probably change and it might be different country to country based on regulation and all that, all that stuff. Okay. But effectively it's built upon, co- built upon the following concepts and that is decentralization, openness, uh, and a greater user utility. So there's no permission needed from a central authority to post anything. No central controlling code. Code is not controlled by a small group of experts. Uh, it is actually rather developed in full view of everyone, encouraging maximum participation and maximum uh, experimentation. If you think about this... If you go on to Facebook and you go to upload a photo, Facebook, I don't really upload it to Facebook, but Facebook has the control over that photo in a way. So you could say, I'm going to upload this photo and you select some sort of JPEG. Well, if Facebook doesn't accept a photo at that resolution, you're going to have to change your photo. You're going to have to shrink it down or change it in some way. They control it. And you're going through the centralized Facebook service, the centralized Facebook servers to post that photo. And then it will exist on a centralized Facebook server is is one example so to kind of dive into these different concepts a little bit more we have decentralization so information is stored at a fixed location on a server somewhere and served as needed that's how it currently is right in web 3 information is found based on content and could be stored in multiple location so that that uh, facebook photo photo uh, example i have short of it having backups or redundancies due to load balancing and stuff like that largely it's it's your account you uploaded the photo. Let's just call it photo one. Now photo one exists somewhere and that's it. And it's just an affixed location. It's on a server somewhere and it's just sitting there, whatever. In web three, like I said, information is found based on content and it could be stored in multiple locations. Now, this is where this is where the infancy part comes in because I've talked to Mike about this and I was like, hey, you know, they're they're trying to sell um you're starting. They're starting to sell uh, different addresses, like uh, you know, .dot ETH and .dot this and .dot that. And I was like, "Man, like, can we can we run a site just out of pure curiosity on the blockchain?" And Mike said, "You know, this is you know way too expensive. It's you know, not really feasible right now." So this is one of those like kind of baby steps where it's possible, but it's probably too too expensive. And I don't know too much about it. It's because it's because it's still kind of being figured out right now in the Web two sphere. You can. Type in, I need a, you know, I need a web host, whether it be free or or paid, easily find an affordable web host, and then just run it, run it on cPanel, run it on Plesk, run it on whatever. And there's like all these options. So everything's already figured out. But as you can hear here, like, yeah, like Web3 is decentralized, but it's still being figured out. The next concept here is uh, trustless and permissionless. So participants can interact directly without going through a trusted intermediary basically without permission from a governing body. So like Twitter, for example. So I can go right in there and I can, you know, mess around with a post or I can like, I can uh, like reply to a post or I can edit a post or something like that. I can mess around with it. Like maybe I made a typo and I go and I mess around with it, stuff like that. But Twitter doesn't have to really, um Twitter doesn't have to like approve that. Whereas Twitter, as we all know, doesn't like, it doesn't like to have an edit button. <laughs> so no one can edit their tweets now i realize there's a twitter blue solution and i think way back in the day you could on twitter or desktop regardless of which there's no edit button as far as i know and so like that's because twitter the governing body is like no that's it now obviously that that's not that doesn't like write off the fact that th- someone would still need to make a web3 edit button but the point is is that maybe somebody could and Twitter doesn't have to approve it in this particular case. It's not that one centralized body and web 3.0 apps. So this is similar to my, my talk on the, the website web 3.0 apps. Uh, you know, they, they run on the blockchain, um, or a decentralized, uh, peer to peer or P2P network or a combo of both. And these are also known as, as D apps. So decentralized apps. It's not, you're not downloading the, the Twitter app and then. The Like on your phone and then the Twitter app connects to all the Twitter infrastructure and that's that one centralized body, which is Twitter. Maybe it's connecting to this decentralized peer-to-peer network or it's running on a combination of the blockchain and that. So this is where things are kind of in their infancy. Things are very expensive right now and things are being sort of sorted out and eventually it'll be consumerized just like we have hosting now. Uh, it also lends itself uh, web three lends itself to AI and machine learning, which we all know uh, is huge for web webcams and, you know, identifying people through different cameras and stuff like this, bunch of stuff you can get into that. We're not going to get into all the, all the different applications there. And there's also connectivity and, and uh, ubiquity, which is info and content are more are connected and, and more ubiquitous. Uh, they can be a- accessed by multiple applications with more and more devices being connected uh, to the web. So just as like anything else we have, uh, Uh, More and more things are connected. There's a reason why the semiconductor shortage affects things that you would never think of like fridges because half of these fridges are connected to the internet now or they're at least doing some sort of computation. So Web3 is sort of uh, lending itself into this or it's sort of growing and it's being influenced by the fact that everything is uh, an internet of things. And so it's obviously being interconnected with that. So for example, from a UX perspective, um uh, you know, in terms to, to answer the, the base question, I know we just went through a whole bunch, but basically, and I'll just go back through the, the question, what do we think uh what do you think about web two versus web three and how do you think the internet will look like in the upcoming years? You know, now that we have a, a basis of, of web one, two, and three, I would say, you know, from a UX perspective, I think that having a wallet account. That you can attach to a website to use its services is arguably a lot more convenient than having separate accounts per service as we do now with Web2. So if you're not sure what, that, what I mean by that, it's like, let's say, for example, I have uh, want to have some Solana, so I want to have some uh, SOL or Sol. Basically, I have that stored in a wallet somewhere, and let's say I want to go and use a web app. Uh, that is like, I want to go buy an NFT on some other marketplace or something. I can literally connect my wallet to that site with a few clicks, depending on, uh, how my, you know, internet extension or my browser extensions are set up and that type of thing. I can connect it to that. And then now I'm just in. I don't need to go and make a separate account and mess around with that. Some of them, you know, maybe you have to here and there or whatever. But for the most part, I think that from a UX perspective, this is, uh, this is like a big. This is a big thing. And I think this was actually influenced by Web2 a lot. So I think that right now we kind of have a half step. And that half step is, you know, connect or quote-unquote log in with Google, log in with Facebook, log in with Microsoft, et cetera. That's sort of the half step where it's like, hey, have one or two accounts, and then you can just register for my service with that one account. And I think that Web3, from a UX perspective, kind of learned from that and said, okay, You know, this is how we should do this. You know, the wallet is what you want to connect. The wallet is the thing you're going to go in. You don't need to have another profile page. You don't need to have another account. You're just going to be doing transactions on this web app and you're going to be using your wallet to connect with it because that's all that at the end of the day matters. You don't need to be having nine accounts and then have your credit card stored on all these nine different uh, e-commerce stores. So, So stuff like that, I think, is slowly going away. And I think that was influenced by Web2's, you know, connect with Microsoft or register Microsoft, log in with Google, those type of things. Um, much like web one to web two and, you know, web two to web three and all this, I don't think that web three is a replacement for the old versions of the web. So web one was largely focused on static pages, which are still very prominent on webs, which are very, still, still very prominent. Um, you know, there's a lot of information based websites out there. And whereas they may have more flashy, uh, more flashy rendering things. They may have more graphics. They may be coded a more modern way. Web one is still, Highly influential in the fact that there are still static pages out there that rarely, if ever change. And we go there to research stuff. A prime example to me is, is government stuff. So a lot of the government, uh, like regulations, if you're like, Hey, like, do I need a permit for this? Or Hey, do I need whatever? Go to your government's website. They probably don't update it too often, maybe once a year, maybe once every five years. And so a lot of that stuff is very web one ish. It's made more than likely, hopefully with more modern tech, but it's still highly influenced by that. The old days of just having static, real basic web pages. It's still highly influenced there. Now, web two has a lot of user generated content. Like we said, so for example, social media networks, but these social media networks are often used, right? To share web pages and those web pages could be either literally web one or highly influenced from web one. So we have people that are like, oh, like they're on Twitter and they're, they're, they're talking about, oh, I made this blog post and their blog is highly influenced by web one. It's still like a static page that rarely gets changed and and people are using it for research depending on what it is. And so the, the user, user content is highly influenced again, if not basically web one. Now the big web apps of today, like social media networks or probably not going to switch over to Web3. So this, this again, lends itself to the fact that these, you know, Web 1, 2, 3, they don't really replace each other. They influence and change and work together effectively. Instead, in my opinion, there's going to be new applications made that do new things, like maybe they'll deal with cryptocurrencies or they'll perform certain types of computing via uh, a decentralized app. But personally, I don't think that we're going to have – Um, like Facebook go, yeah, we're just going to become a decentralized app. It's like, why would Facebook do that? Yeah, like, you know, Twitter, oh, like, you know, Twitter, let's, let's get rid of all our centralized servers and let's become a decentralized app in the future. I just don't personally see that. And then also I have my own personal opinion here, which is, you know, I think that the stage, stages of the web in almost computing power. So this is just like a little personal note and how I keep things sort of uh, organized in my, in my head is that web one was simple and new and it had, essentially just basic page serving for the most part. Then you started having all these people talk about cloud computing and how it was going to change everything. And then cloud computing with all those promises started taking off and more and more tasks were brought from locally computing, uh, computed applications like image editing on Photoshop to maybe a cloud-based image editor where you just did it on your browser and it was all being done in the cloud, right? So all these computations were being done online rather than your local PC, and now Web3 is sort of breaking up that cloud computing among different resources, maybe instead of one service provider or one server doing the image processing. You know, you don't have just have Adobe doing it. Maybe it's a little bit of that P2P. It's that little bit of that decentralization. Maybe a little, bit, little, little of it is being done on the blockchain, stuff like that. It's sort of a way, if you will, of taking control and ownership back from centralized parties, although a little bit of devil's advocate here – this is a, this is kind of disputed in many ways that I'm not well versed in. A lot of people will say, "Yeah, but there, you know, there's certain stakeholders that have this and that." I'm not versed in that. I don't know. But in terms of me personally remembering Web one, two, three, that's how I do it. Basics is Web one. Then you got your cloud computing Web two, and then Web three is sort of changing that and changing how that cloud computing is being done. That's just my personal way that I remember all this.
2: Yeah, I think you covered it really, really well. I think you like the the, the definitions were dead on. Um, and I think it gives a really good picture. And I, I agree with your take on the future as well. But I have my own kind of thought process. One thing I know for sure is that the the what we see right now as Web3 is not going to be anywhere close to what it is going to be in the future. We have not come up with the Web3 of the future, which is why I always hesitate to call it Web3. And I'm putting Web3 in quotes. No one can see that because... I don't think this is like a a replacement, just like you said, Matt, for web two or web one or whatever. Right now where it's at is it's essentially a library that you can use to do certain things on the blockchain. So in a web development sense, you're just using a, a separate API. The blockchain is a distributed database that can do some computing that you can interact with. The problem is... And where I don't, where I can't figure out where it's going to go is the fact that it's cost ineffective. Every transaction that you make on the blockchain, whether it's storing data, whether it's interacting with data in a way that changes some data costs you some sort of money. In Ethereum, that's called gas. That's a very expensive blockchain right now. Now that they're planning on making it cheaper, but I don't think it's ever going to be trivial. I don't think the cost, the expenses are ever going to be nothing. With Solana or other blockchains like it, it's cheaper, like very cheap, but it's still you're still talking fractions of a cent to be able to write like a text a text message onto the blockchain. So imagine in scale making a, an application like Twitter or making an application like Facebook where you're storing images now on the blockchain, which is even more expensive like Oh boy this stuff does not work on scale. So that's why when Matt said that stuff like Facebook or Twitter is never going to go on the blockchain, I agree because it doesn't make sense. Like who benefits from that? Yes, it's decentralized. Yes, it's censorship proof, quote unquote. But really to interface with that data, you still need some sort of application. The blockchain itself is not an application. It's a way for you to store and create code on on there. But to interface with it, even though that we call it like we're 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 decentralizing the even the interface by putting it on decentralized servers, that stuff is still technically created and maintained by some sort of central body. Whether it be a decentralized DAO, even then, like I just. I have a hard time wrapping my head around full decentralization because I just, I know the people around me, right? I know the, how company infrastructure works. I know how P2P works. And it, for the most case, people will do the, the minimal amount that they need to do to kind of survive. And the idealistic view that we have that all of a sudden, just because we can create these decentralized companies, like what, that's what a Deo is. Where, uh, you know, there is no centralized leadership. Everyone votes on, uh, everyone votes on whatever direction the company goes in. Those companies are still going to be led by the centralized figures that either created them or have taken them over or are benefiting from them in the greatest way because that's, that's how society works. You're not going to have this idealistic person, people that come in that will, you know, interact and give their time completely for free to benefit other people and direct the company in a way that makes sense for our people that are benefiting from it. Like at the end of the day, there is going to always be a centralized body that controls where and what stuff goes. Now, the fact that it might not be you know your traditional CEO types, it might not be your traditional uh, you know company middle management infrastructure is maybe a really good thing. Like maybe we're going to have – we're going to see more practical CEOs, more practical, uh, you know, people that are actually creating or people that are actually like driving the technology forward as the people that are leading it. In my opinion, that's actually a good thing. Um, There are other benefits from this other than just pure straight decentralization and no censorship. The other part is like, again, let's talk about censorship. Is all censorship really that bad? Like there's a very – critical flaw with the with web 3 that like I've talked to many people about and no one can figure out really how to solve and if it's solvable and if it's something that we're going to care about in the future I don't know but really like how are you going to police content on there on the one hand people will say well no we shouldn't police content whatever but okay what about like you know the stuff that really shouldn't be on I don't want to say it but there, there's some there's certain things that really should not be available for people to find. I think everyone can agree on certain things. Like I understand political discourse, all that, that maybe that that's not that's not part of it. I'm talking about other things, violence and stuff like that, like stuff that should not be available, that kind of stuff. There isn't a way to police that right now. So that's why I think like we're we're in the stage of Web3 where it's very early, where there's a lot of there's still a lot of issues with it. And the next stage of it, we just don't know. Because most of the problems that I've outlined will at some point be solved with whatever Web3 will become. And maybe at that point, the performance issues will be solved and the cost issues will be solved. Or we'll move on to a different kind of model for cost, right? Like there's going to be different ways of handling this stuff where everything that I'm talking about now is trivial or everything I'm talking about now won't make a difference. But at the end of the day, there has to be a driving force to go there. The driving force for web2 was these massive companies like Facebook and Google and Instagram like or like and Twitter that benefited greatly monetarily from driving that infrastructure forward and from getting all these people to use the their 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 content and get their information and pay for their information and all that that's that that was the driving force like period right whether we agree with the fact that we, we're giving up our information or whatever, that it, it's irrelevant because that's what happened with Web2. It's the past. The future, the driving force needs to be something. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the cryptocurrencies drive, right? But right now, cryptocurrencies are big. They're fluctuating up and down. There's a lot of money to be made there. There's a lot of volatility. Maybe people are interested enough. I don't know if that's enough to drive full-on adoption of Web3 or full-on adoption of the blockchain. I think there has to be something else. There has to be some other benefit that doesn't benefit the niche, you know, outskirt person that cares about decentralization and cares about uh, censorship because realistically those are out like that's not everyone. Most people don't care about that as much as you think, right? It needs to benefit everyone. And I, I don't know what that benefit is yet. So that's why I think like not to rain on everyone's parade or anything like that. Like I think Web3 is, is going to be around. I think it's going to be a big thing. I think it's just we don't know the final evolution of it yet because it has to have something that can drive adoption. That's the main thing. Maybe it's gaming. That's another thing. Maybe gaming has something to do with it because that's something that could drive adoption. But regardless, I don't think we know that answer yet. And that's why I don't. I don't have an answer for you, Chaba, unfortunately. But I just wanted to give my opinion on where we're going and what will what will get you to the answer.
1: I will say, I mean, one one observation I've made with this is that I know why everyone rolls their eyes at that the NFTs, Web three, and all this is because you literally can't, or at least I don't think you can, have a very brief discussion about it because it's so new and it's so cutting edge, or whatever that we, like to me, anyway, like having a podcast here, I felt the need to present at least the high level examples of Web one through three, and then we need to have like a discussion on that, and and then and, and then it's like, oh, but it's in its infancy; we don't know where it's going to go. And if I and if I could present a theory actually as to where I think it's going to go, I think it's going to be about I I, I, like scratch the blockchain, scratch all that. Like I think that's going to exist. That's great. At the end of the day, I don't think it matters. It, it what matters is is the consumerized version. It could be running on the blockchain. It could be these DAOs. It could be I don't care. I don't think the consumers care. Exactly. And so at the end of the day, I think it, what it's going to be is digital presence. I think we're I think what we're seeing right now is we're seeing um, consolidation. We're seeing. For the first time ever in the gaming space, we're seeing play- PS5 can play with PC, can play with Xbox and all combinations of that can play with Switch. Sometimes we're seeing, we're starting to see consolidation. We're starting to see people, uh, we're starting to see that we're starting to see, uh, metaverses where these metaverses have various like things you can plug into them. And there's, you know, various companies will have like, you know, Domino's will have one in met- like in or wherever it is and stuff like this. And I think that we're starting to see this creation of these metaverses and what i think is going to ultimately happen is is that we're we're more or less living or we're plugged into the internet a lot of us are and a lot of us will use the internet just for like researching things looking at content watching videos but there's a lot of people out there the content creators or people that just really like it where they really have a section of their lives online and I could see web three becoming the thing that consolidates all this, where you're no longer just reading Facebook posts and this and that. It's like you have one account. It goes across everything. It, it, it manages your money. You know, it, it, it really does do everything. It's, it's your digital life in one spot. The phone did that by taking all the third party services and putting it into one device that you put in your pocket. That's what the phone did. Now the services, I think, are going to start to consolidate. And we may, we may and probably will still have separations where certain ones are on ETH and certain ones are on Bitcoin. And this one's over there and that one's on Solana and this. We're still going to probably have that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing things like, Facebook's metaverse and I don't know, Decentraland and stuff. This is totally theoretical, but what I would say is, is what we're probably going to see is we're probably going to see a consolidation where if I'm playing a game, whether it's in a metaverse or connected to it, I'm going to sign in with my wallet. I'm going to do whatever. If there's a microtransaction, I'm going to be able to pay with it from my wallet. I'm then going to get paid my payroll to that wallet and stuff like this. Like I feel as though this is going to be, it's it's going to be the consumerization Of improving the UX of our digital lives so that they're not as disconnected. And I think it's going to start removing this uh, barrier to entry, which sounds simple, but still is, which is, I forgot my password. I don't know if I have an account there. I don't know if that's going to matter as much anymore. And so I really think that the consumerization is what matters. And that users, like especially people who are not into it, rolling their eyes at the blockchain, of course. Do I want to know how my web app for my bank works? I'm a web developer and I don't care. Let me do my investments. Let me make my transactions. Let me transfer money. Let me check on whatever. Let me download my tax documents. I don't care. Does it does it take cloud computing? Uh, sure. Does it? Like, I don't care. Is it load balance? I don't care. I want to log in and manage my, my finances. And I think that people are starting to have more and more of their lives online with COVID especially, and then just naturally to the point where it's going to become like, hey, we need to start consolidating this. Like we got 1300 accounts. This is out of control. Why do we have 1300 accounts? And I think web three is going to start sewing this together and really start consolidating things where it's like, I have one pool of money. I can plug it in anywhere. I get paid on there stuff like that those definitely going to be different standards and companies competing for it and stuff like this and it's not going to be as smooth as what i'm saying but it's just like how if you exist in one digital centralized ecosystem today if you're a microsoft person and you're you're gaming on an xbox you're using windows you got one account for everything you know you're on word that's how you do your work and you're sending emails through office 365 and you do all this there's your ecosystem Think of, in my opinion, Web3 is going to connect to not just Microsoft, but it might connect to Decentraland. It might connect to the Facebook Marketplace. It might connect to this and that and this. and not, not Facebook Marketplace. Facebook's uh, Horizons or whatever their their metaverse is. To the point where everything is just easier. And that's where I think we're going. There's a reason why password managers, as simple as they sound, have taken off. Because it's out of control. we got freaking passwords everywhere. And we got data breaches and stuff everywhere. And it's hard. Like it's, it's hard to manage everything. And I, and I I could see web three coming in and being like, okay, one wallet, maybe we consolidate some of those. And we deal with all like 900 of these services, connect your wallet or connect your identity to it. And your wallet's connected to your identity. Somehow, you know, whatever they'll figure out the, the logistics I'm sure through the consumerization. And I think that's, what's going to happen is consumerizing. All this is where it's going to go. Uh, and I know I said it was going to be brief, but again, <laughs> with Web three, here I, we go. Like I'm gonna add, I'm gonna add to it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on on, on another tangent
2: here as well. Actually, uh, we're not gonna go brief with this one because it's it, there's a lot to talk about. Um, another aspect of Web three, I just want to briefly touch on NFTs because I know people have some they have some hesitancy with them, be- and for for good reason because they're annoying. Cause they're annoying, period. Like, if you, if you look at the NFT projects that are a- actively being developed, there's hundreds of them and it makes zero sense how each one of them could ever retain any value. Doesn't make any sense. And they won't, in my opinion, for sure. But there's sure. <laughs> yes, for sure. Because there's just like it, literally every day there's like projects being developed with thousands of different NFTs. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's like if, it's like if Magic the Gathering created like a clone of itself of different kinds of cards every single day for like two years and then be like, oh, which one's worth money? I don't know. Like It doesn't matter. But that's not the point that I want to try to make. There is some utility that could cap, like NFTs could have some structure to them where they could potentially uh, exist and retain value and be used, right? They're non-fungible tokens, meaning that they, they can't be changed. So when you create an NFT, when you create an image or something like that from a collection, you own, you own the rights to that image, right? So people can still download that image, whatever they can right click, save as. But if it comes down to it, if you need to verify who owns that image through your wallet, you own that image because it's literally in your wallet. Like the reference to that image is in your wallet. With that, like creators. Of of these NFT projects can create some interesting utilities today. Literally today, I w- I'm I'm part of an NFT project right now called Solarians, and one of the interesting utilities that they were talking about that kind of made sense. And I don't know if they were if they're going to be able to fully pull this off. I just want to give that disclaimer right now. But essentially, it, the Solarians are little robots, little 2D animated robots, right? What the project has done is they've invested in and and invested in a 3D artist to create 3D versions of all the robots, all 9,900 of those robots. Link them to the current metadata of the NFT so that when a person owns the 2D robot, they also own the 3D robot. And the 3D robots are actually uh, rigged. In the sense that it, like for, for either Unreal or Epic Engine, I can't remember. They're rigged as 3D objects so that when they, they can be put into a game and actually animated. And you own that entity, like that robot and the 3D element. And what you can do with metaverses now is that as long as you're rigging and your 3D files are in the right format, you can submit projects to metaverses. And be able to use your NFT inside of a metaverse. So not one metaverse, but any metaverse that will accept that kind of format of, uh, of rigging and of 3D, 3D objects, right? So you're essentially able to use something that you own in more than one game. Which I thought, like, I know that that was one of the intentions of the metaverses. And I know that was one of the intentions of NFTs. I just haven't seen it done yet. And now I'm starting to understand how it's going to be done. So there is some some standardization that needs to be done. There is some reach, like it isn't fully decentralized. It's not like any NFT can be used in any game. But it looks like they are, these metaverses are all getting together that are being built and creating standards as they go so that they are able to share assets. They are able to share NFTs and collections. So I just wanted to provide another kind of futuristic look on what could be, especially when you're talking about metaverses and NFTs and the gaming world. The disclaimer here is that nothing, I, I don't want to say nothing like that has been done yet. I think some projects are starting to get there uh, with, with that kind of stuff, but it's some, it's very early on and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like and how it's going to work and what the benefits of that are going to be like, is it obviously it's probably just going to be kind of a visual thing where you're going to be able to use your NFT as a skin. And actually go and play games with it or it's going to be more of a collectible thing i don't know but i think it's another thing that i just want to throw out there as a future thing that's coming and that's very much you know realistic to achieve at this point
1: Huey. <laughs> yeah it's a lot <laughs> it's it's a lot but i mean there's a lot of stuff happening and it kind of all kind of came in at once and like like I said earlier, it's annoying and it is annoying because you hear about it all the time and a lot of it's not very well explained. And I hope that we, Mike and I kind of tackled this and and explained it at least decently. A lot of it was our opinions, but – and I think next – I think the next episode we're going to do like a formal what is web, web one, web two, web three okay. actually to annoy you yeah. all. No, but yeah. <laughs> but like it's going to be like a – like in my opinion, it's going to be like a – uh like a guide or it's going to be like the basics and it's going to try to just say, this is what it is. This is what you need to know, at least right now. And hopefully it's like a non-annoying guide. But before we start talking about that, let's go into question number two, which is by uh, Chris Keene. Hopefully, again, I'm saying this correctly. And, and he said on Twitter, when do you decide to take a, a, take a closer look at a new tech or framework? What is uh, What is that going point? Community... Solves a problem, been around for more than two years, et cetera. So what I do, and this is, again, my opinion, and a lot of people have different ones, is what I do is I I say, I kind of look at it this way. When working on a given project, you know, when it becomes cumbersome on the framework or tool that you're looking on or that you're working on, the one that you're currently using, then it's kind of time to maybe start looking uh, at something else. So for example, if I'm working with a tool and, and 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 there's a lot of features or a very specific feature that I have to implement all the time, but I have to hack it in because it just doesn't have it. And there's it's not on the horizon either. So a recurring need, say, two-factor authentication. It's just not a part of my existing uh, stack. It's not a part of my existing uh, authentication solution, whatever it is. Maybe it's time to start looking at another tool. And this can also be indicated by a lack of support from its creators as well. So They're not supporting it. So now the tool that I'm using, the framework that I'm using is becoming very cumbersome to use just to make a basic site or just to make whatever it's supposed to make. Now, even if you're not using them, okay, to be clear, let's say you're using an older piece of software, an older framework, and you're doing it for very, very basic reasons. So you're not using a bunch of modern features. Having a bunch of missing features, though, can be an indicator that the project is being sunset. Or that you may have issues moving forward. Should those more modern features be something that the project may use in the future? So if the projects that you're doing right now are very basic and you're using some old piece of software and you're like, Oh, it's fine. I don't need two factor authentication. I don't need all these fancy image processors. I don't need any caching. I don't need this and that. And if you do not care about that, if any of those projects grow even a little bit, if they change even a little bit, you're probably going to start having problems. And to me, that, makes, that means that the tool I'm using is making it cumbersome to work, on the, to work on the project I'm using and then I'm out type of thing. So a common example would be uh, if you're maintaining a project to a standard that was set five years ago and a new big upgrade is planned for the next year and as you research all the new things that you want to add to that big upgrade – you're finding many, many holes in the feature set of the tools that you're currently using. Now, this is a very common situation in the real world. So in our experience, it's a very common situation where the client will buy a site and they pay a nominal maintenance fee, but they save up money to pay for a modernization upgrade months or years down the line. So they're paying for more or less the hosting and the standard needs to be maintained to what it was when it was originally purchased. Now, five years have gone by They've saved up a little bit of a nest egg and they want a modernization upgrade. This situation is commonly why websites undergo, at least in our experience, huge migrations and have a lot of big changes all in one shot. And sometimes they even don't have all the features that they originally had in the new website. And they'll be slowly added in updates to that new site that was migrated to or that new code base or whatever. That's usually because the old code base or the old tool set was not able to provide all the modern features. And due to the budget, it's like, okay, we're going to spend our budget actually doing the migration, like part of the budget on the migration. We're going to cut some of these features and we'll slowly add them later. That's because, once again, that tool or that, that framework did not have all those changes. I can't just go from... I don't know what, like, let's just call it like framework A. If framework A has been supported for all this time, so I built a site five years ago in framework A and framework A is maybe it's still supported or maybe it's being sunset or maybe it just doesn't have a lot of the new features like I've I've already mentioned, all these different things that can happen. And the client says, I want a totally modern site. I want to have two-factor authentication. I want some forums on there. I want this. I want that. And they currently have Uh, forums, but they, for some reason, does not support two factor authentication. In the modernization upgrade, I may have to migrate over to a new tool set. And based on the budget, I might have to cut the forums for a bit. And then I'll slowly add the forums back with that two factor authentication as the client slowly generates a little bit of money. And that often does happen in the industry. And a lot of the time it's based on deadlines and a lot of the time it's based on budget as well. So to answer, um, that like the sort of general question when it becomes cumbersome to work on whatever it is you're using i would say it start it's time to like start looking uh and especially if you notice it falling behind and it's not being cumbersome to you directly it probably will become cumbersome and it's something to look at now there were different sections or different parts of the question. So I'm going to address each one. Uh, and it says like, you know, what is the going point? So like, why would we, you know, take a closer look at a new framework? And so the first one is direct from the question community. So my opinion on this is that this heavily depends on if you're going to get into the community itself. So if you're going hard into a community, then you're probably, you know, in good hands for support. You're learning new skills rapidly. You're seeing what other people are doing. Uh, you're, like I said, you're being exposed to a bunch of new methodologies that the community members are experimenting with, or maybe even the actual official, uh, framework devs are in there and they're talking about the new ways that they're going to innovate or update or change their product. Okay. But here's the thing. If you're not going to go hard into the community, And you're not finding a lot of, let's say, quote unquote, regular support, like help on Stack Overflow or various publicly accessible articles are just not around. And you're finding that really there's no support kicking around and you're going to have to join the community, but you really don't want to. Maybe you're going to want to hold off jumping into that framework or that tool, at least in production, because over time, more Stack Overflow questions and more things will show up if the project starts going mainstream. But if you're not a person that wants to dive into that community, you're not a person that wants to use something that is usually – if it's highly community-based, it's usually cutting edge because it hasn't breached into these public forums and these guides and stuff like that. Unless you want to get into the community, I don't think you should go into it. That's my opinion. So it really depends on what your your stance is. Do you want to go into the community and really see it developed, and that, and you you know you're going to get a bunch of support? You want all the cutting edge stuff? Then go for it. But if you don't want to do the community stuff and you're not seeing that those publicly accessible guides yet, I'm saying that that they like the community isn't a, an aspect of something that you care about when you're selecting that tool. Mm-hmm.
2: I think, yeah, I, I'm going to bring it into uh, the React versus Svelte conversation a little bit right now, because I think it, it plays a role in this conversation. Um, so React is kind of like the, you know, the maintain, like the the original project, I would say, or the project that you're probably working with uh, most of the time. And then you see Svelte kind of appear on the horizon, especially when we're talking about community, right? So if you're part of like the Twitter community or you're part of some sort of Discord community and... You see people start mentioning Svelte, you see people start working with Svelte, and you're still working with React. That's a very realistic scenario that's probably happening to people. Now, because people are mentioning Svelte more than React in that community, that doesn't mean that people aren't using React more. React is still much more popular right now, even though it's not talked about as much, I would say, uh, as it used to be on Twitter. But Svelte is being talked about more. The reasoning for choosing something like Svelte or React at that point is not going to be fully based on the community. It's going to have a lot of different factors, really. If you're in a seasoned role at a company, the company has many products built out. They have many developers on the team. Everyone knows React. They've already been working with React. It would be very difficult to make the switch for company-wide to something like Svelte it would just be a crazy thing to do all of a sudden, like literally insane, in my opinion. But this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. Let's say that you're maybe in a role in that company and all of a sudden there's like a tool that needs to be built out internally for that company or something. And you have the choice now and you're, you're maybe you and someone else are building it together. Maybe it's just yourself. I think it's important sometimes internally in a company when they see new technology start coming up To for small projects internally, start to experiment. And what that does is maybe you're not going to switch to it fully, but it allows your developers internally to start seeing what's available and how the different technology paradigms that are existing on the horizon. And maybe if you know, you have buy-in slowly as you go. So maybe you create one app one app in Svelte and you see a couple of people different using it and you talk about it internally and someone else decides to do the same thing or someone else decides to do a different technology. You can have that internal conversation when a new project comes up, maybe then it's time to start slowly switching to it. It's never going to be an abrupt switch. It's just not going to happen. But a new technology in terms of community will come up. You'll see it come up. And it'll be far down the line when you're actually going to be starting to switch to it. If you see a new technology come up and it's the first time you see it come up, like SolidJS or something like that, it's the first week or the first month that it's come up. I would never suggest someone to make the switch on a a production project right away. It's something that you have to kind of keep an eye on and see the maturity of it and see if it consistently comes up. For instance, Deno. Deno is a backend service that's similar to Node.js, Node.js is used in many production servers. Deno came up and had a really big, really big presence on something like Twitter for a like, not for a long time, for a couple months. And all of a sudden, it just died. The project didn't die. It's still around. It's still kicking. It's still doing well. They're, They're still releasing updates. But it's no longer part of the community. It's no longer really that popular at this point. And in my opinion, it's still being built out to the point where I would switch to it in something like a production environment. And you can see that happening because the community kind of realized that and decided to put on the back burner. I have no doubt in my mind that it will eventually come back up. But for you, as, as a person that's monitoring the community, as part of the community, you can tell and you can make that infer- inference that, hey, maybe I should just stick with Node. Maybe I should just look for other technology or you know, be in that sense. Whereas Svelte, in my opinion... It's been a couple of years now that it's been building and it hasn't gone away. So that's something that you can actually start looking and keeping your eye on. And that's a really great gauge of being like, okay, this has been around for not a couple of months. This has been around for a year or two. People are still talking positively about it. It's won awards, it's done this and that. Maybe I'll talk to this person, maybe I'll talk to this person and then make an educated decision. It should never your decision to switch technologies should never be based on a ration of like, oh my God, it's popular. It should always be logical like Matt was saying where like there is a need that needs – there is a need for something new. There is a maybe – maybe the need isn't exactly for something new. Maybe the need is for experimentation because again, I think that that should be part of a company's logic like a company's uh, internal workings where like they want their their internal team to innovate slowly and small in small amounts. But a little bit here and there is going to help them in the in the long run. Whereas, if a company is unwilling to try something new, then they could be stuck on Joomla when, you know. Oh, Mike's na- favorite. Mike's yeah, favorite. It, but that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're not willing to innovate at all, you can say that WordPress can do everything. You can say that React can do anything, everything. But so can Joomla technically <laughs> in the end. But all of a sudden you're 10 years behind and stuff like Laravel exists, stuff like uh, WordPress exists, stuff like React exists, stuff like Next.js exists, like a million different better technologies that where you can do something faster and more powerful than something like Joomla all of a sudden.
1: We should, we should look at modern Joomla.
2: I don't want to look at modern Joomla. We're not going to do that. Why not, Mike? We we should look at modern Joomla. Nope. I'm not doing that. But like it's, it's stuff like that that you can get (laughs) stuck in. jQuery is another really good example. Like jQuery is, is an amazing tool was an amazing tool. And I give it all the props for what it could do because it, it bridged that gap between browsers when it needed to be bridged. That was a really important functionality of jQuery because it provided you with a lot of it it essentially detected what browser you're working with and used the right methods to c- accomplish the task that you're trying to do. Instead of you having to you know create different you know if statements for which browser and trying to write different code because browsers used to do things differently a lot more than they do now. So it did a really good job on that. It did a really good job with DOM manipulation when it was a little bit more difficult to do with JavaScript. JavaScript caught up. Now using jQuery is a little bit of overhead that doesn't make sense. Learning, learning something like jQuery from the get-go almost doesn't make sense now because straight JavaScript is going to benefit you more in the long run. With straight JavaScript, you can jump into any framework and understand the inner workings of it. With jQuery, it's still there. Like it's the fundamentals of jQuery is still programming, right? Like you can still bridge that gap. It's just going to be like why? Like it, it, it's going to be a little bit harder. It's going to not make as much sense, and you're gonna you're gonna be stuck in that. Like is this jQuery? Is this JavaScript? Which we all were stuck in at some point when we were learning it, and uh, that's that's not going to benefit you. So it's just one of those things, like community is an aspect but i think it's one of those in in a in a corporate environment it should be a very small aspect that you just monitor a little bit
1: all right and the next one here then let's uh, jump into that as mike goes in and installs joomla uh, nope. and and lets me know how that goes the <laughs> next the next one direct from the question is you know does it solve a problem so my opinion is um my opinion is Mike should be installing Joomla. So my opinion is that there <clears throat> there are so many ways uh to solve problems and get things working at the end of the day, right? Jokes aside, and you know, if you told me 5 years ago that WordPress would be mentioned and used in the same breath as headless CMS, I wouldn't really have believed you. I probably wouldn't have even known what headless CMS was. And then even when I did learn that a few years later, I probably would have been like WordPress isn't that. Uh now the point I'm making here is maybe I was foolish back then, but the point I'm making here is that unless the tool uh, solves a real serious problem or solves it way better than anything else. It's hard to sway or attract me over in lieu of something I'm familiar with using. You know, if I'm using something and I'm used to it, I'm used to using it. Like I said, I'm used to troubleshooting it. I'm used to fixing it. Experience is hard to get, and it takes a long time. So pulling me away from the experience I've gained is very difficult. So on its on its own, if the if the uh, if the new tool you're looking at solves a problem, there's probably another way to do it. And so for me, it by itself, that isn't enough. I. Oh, do you have more? Sorry. No, 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 okay. go ahead. No, so,
2: please. Yeah, I I agree with you on this one almost wholeheartedly. I think if if the tool solves the same problem as the tool you're already using, that should not be a factor for you. Having said that, like for me, this is this is where Matt and I differ, right? Like this is the big difference between Matt and myself, and I think it, it's a really good difference to have in in a team. I always like to look at new stuff. I always like to try new thing, try new technology and stuff like that. Um, so I'm I will I will be more likely to like reach for a new tool rather than continue using something that I'm I'm used to. Having said that, that is not the correct or the probably the majority of people's thinking and i think it's more important to get good at programming to get good at solving a problem rather than worrying about staying up to date with technology matt's point of wordpress wordpress can still do it all if you're really good at wordpress it's a very lucrative market it's been around for a very long time there's plenty of legacy wordpress sites that are built very poorly if you're really good at wordpress you can go in there and optimize them and create a better better experiences inside of that. That's going to be a huge lucrative market for you to continue working in, in for the next five, maybe even 10 years. You don't have to worry about it, which is why I think like just getting good at troubleshooting, getting good at problem solving, getting good at writing code is your main focus rather than just being like me where I'm constantly looking at the newer technology. Now, I'm, I'm saying that like tongue in cheek. I, I don't actually do that all the time. I I do make my decisions and stick to them for a while and, and get better at it and stuff like that. It's just I'm more likely to go to a new technology. So that's why I bring it up. But regardless, find something like if, if it's just something that solves a, the same problem that you're already solving with the technology that you're using, that's not a reason to use it.
1: Absolutely. And the next one here is uh... – been around for two two or more years and so my neck so my opinion on this part is that you know this sounds like uh like this sounds like the the person asking the question is worried about support and I think that being around for two or more years is a good indicator but there's a lot of other things that you should be looking at including adoption rate uh, community activity uh, update schedule from the creators is there are some sort of roadmap do they add new features or do they just do maintenance sometimes in their updates? You know, is it falling behind, but they're like, they're keeping it secure, but they're they're not really adding new features, that type of thing. So for example, WordPress has been around for years. There's tons of money to be made as a web dev using WordPress or even a developer making plugins for WordPress users. It has t- It has had a ton of updates over the years and has been modernized reasonably quickly for the size of the platform. So therefore it'll be sticking around most likely. So stuff like that, I think is more important than the age, although it all come kind of comes together. And anything can happen. That's something to really keep in mind is anything can happen. A company can just shut down overnight. You could spin all your clients up on some CMS and you better hope it runs locally because if it runs on a CDN or something and that company shuts down and that CDN goes away, that remote those remote resources disappear, it's gone. And even then... Now you don't have updates to so that CMS and that's not, you know, the greatest thing in the world. So really is like, you know, kind of re- reflecting on community or does it solve a problem Been around for more, two or more years. You know, I, I sound like I'm being pessimistic with all my things of like, oh, like poking holes and stuff, but I think that's what you really should be doing is you should be looking like, does it have a community? Let's poke some holes in it. Does it solve a problem? Poke some holes in it. Has it been around for two more years? Poke some holes in it. Because at the end of the day, if it doesn't hold as much water as you need it to, then you shouldn't be switching to it or you shouldn't be switching from it or maybe you should be switching from it if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing and so that's my two cents on this entire question
2: i like i liked your poke holes and then hold water analogy there that was a uh- that was a good little transition. I liked
1: it. I uh, I just thought of it and I was really, I got real happy. I was, yeah, I was, I I was smiling bet you, the whole time. I bet time. you were smiling like
2: crazy. <laughs> 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 Love it. Um, but okay, so my take on this, uh, I'll just give you kind of one of my, the exa- an example process that I go to vet a project. I agree with Matt that you should actually go into it with the mindset of trying to find what's wrong with it. You should never be rose colored goggles on something that you might use in production. Having said that, there is a certain thing to say that like if you're doing a small little dev project for yourself or like you know building your own personal site, you can be a little bit more flexible in that sense, but I'm I'm talking like, you know, I want to use this for something that I'm going to charge for or I'm going to need to maintain for the next 5 years whatever. What I do is I I go to the GitHub repo very often, that's one of my first things. And I look at activity on the GitHub repo like Matt was saying, updates and stuff like that. So when was it last updated? I look at the issues tab. That's a very big one. So in there, not only how many issues there are, because a lot of very popular projects will always have a lot of issues. That's not an indictive indicator that that's a bad thing. What I do is I see how the issues are handled. So if you go into an issue and you see that people are, you know, being treated uh, w- with respect, people are shown how to properly submit an issue first, people are then helped with their issues And pointed, pointing at different, like referencing other issues that have already been solved around it. If I see a a system in place, um, some decorum, some structure in the issues tab, and it's active, that's a very good indicator for me. Because I know that the community is there. I know that the people that are maintaining the project are maintaining it consistently right now. Right. But if I go in there and I see a bunch of issues that have been open for 10 days with no response, I see not a, I see a bunch of people in the community are attacking people for opening issues like verb, like not verbally, but in text saying that like either, you know, you shouldn't be opening an issue because we're never going to solve this or you shouldn't be opening an issue like this. Uh, this is completely wrong. Just get, go away. Like like not being helpful, not constructive criticism of issue opening. If I see some sort of negativity around that community, that's an indicator for me that this is probably not where I want to spend my time, right? I don't want to spend my time trying to build this because inevitably, if you're doing something more complex with a, f- a library or a framework, you're going to run into a, a place where you're going to have to go into the issue section. It's just inevitable. I almost every project that I've been at, there's been some sort of compatibility thing. There's been something that I've done that's a little bit weird. So I've had to either search the issues tab for an answer. And that most of the time I find my answer in there. So that's another key thing like you want to be able to do. And, or I've had to actually create an issue and get it solved by the, by the maintainers or by the community. So it's an important one. Pull request is another one, because if you go into the pull request tab of a GitHub repo, you'll see a couple different things. You'll see What's being fixed right now and what's being merged, which is a really good indicator of like, okay, this is active. This is being fixed. This is, these are the things that are actively a problem that are going to be fixed really soon, which is great for your, you know, be able to build out on it because maybe it's a problem that's going to affect you at any time. You can also see how the pull requests are treated. A lot of times in a kind of a worse project, there's going to be a lot of pull requests with zero activity on them. So if there's a bunch of people that are willing to invest their time to try to fix it, but no one reviewing pull requests or giving very bad reviews of pull requests and not merging them in, then you know that you have some, you have a maintainer there that's very strict and very self-centered in a way that they only want it one way and that's it. They don't want any help or if they want help, they need it to be exactly in the format that they have it. Otherwise, they're not going to accept it, which is a very real possibility. So. This is a very long-winded answer to this question of being around for two years, but like vetting a project is a very difficult thing. And when you need something new that's used in production, it's important to kind of understand that. It's not about the two years, although time is important in my opinion as well. It's more about what's happening right now in the community and what you can see happening in the next like year or two.
1: It's, it's a multifaceted question, right? Like obviously we talked about each facet in individually, but it's, it's multifaceted even – like everything is like super uh, in-depth, if you will. Like it, you need to really choose your tools carefully because you're going to have problems with the tool that you choose regardless. Like there's always going to be a hole in uh, – like a, a feature somewhere that's missing or there's going to be like a hole in something you didn't research this one particular thing. And so imagine – a, a project or a a tool that's been researched and researched and researched and you think this is suitable for a project, imagine one where you didn't do the research. There's going to be problems with the one that was vetted. If you don't vet it, it's going it, to – I mean unless you get lucky, it's probably going to be a disaster. And We've been there where oftentimes we'll be given a project that's already on something or we'll be given a project that's already – done and we're just going to maintain it. So we don't get to choose what's going on. We don't get to choose the part. So we don't even really get much influence. We're just, we're just maintenance. We're just, we're just doing some maintenance. And it wasn't the right tool for the job. We've we've seen all kinds of different stuff. We've, we've seen airline software be used just to manage a calendar, like full on airline sell tickets, the whole nine. And it was modified to just have an interactive calendar. So like stuff like that is all over the place and like I'm sure we have crazy stuff like that and maybe it was due to a certain reg- like r- certain reason, but at the end of the day, you know, vet your stuff as best you can and uh, hopefully our comments helped. But here's something that's going to help. I don't have an answer for this next question, so I'm going to read the question. Mike's going to take over because I don't use this. So uh, this is by uh, – I I presume I can read this as a word, but I'm not sure. So J4W8N on Twitter. Uh, says to, to TypeScript or not to TypeScript. And if so, should this be on the short list of things to learn towards the beginning of a dev journey or sometime after? So HTML, CSS, JS, you know, frame framework or TypeScript type of thing. Uh, I don't use TypeScript. I don't have a comment. Mike, please, sir, take it away. Okay. Uh,
2: so I think there's a couple of different ways to approach this. Um, I'm going to go on the less, less beaten path. So, a person that's coming from a different language, in terms of TypeScript, if you're coming from something like C sharp, Java, something that's already been typed, right? Something that or that already has aspects of TypeScript. C sharp is actually pretty much TypeScript, uh, has aspects of TypeScript built into it. I think it's important and inherent for you to immediately start with something like TypeScript, because going from a typed language to JavaScript is a little bit shocking. And that's where you get a lot of people kind of like dissing JavaScript. They're like, what the heck is this? I can just assign, you know, anything to a var and then reassign it down the line and then assign it again down the line. And no one will know because there's a thousand lines of code and you'll have to read through all the code to know what the hell I'm doing here. True. Very true. Very real take. Someone that's already been working with types all this time. Very real. Having said that, if you're someone that's just new to development... Is it on the short list of things to learn? I think roadmaps are very difficult to talk about. We've ta- we've said this before. I just talked about it on the Scrimba podcast recently. Roadmaps in general, like me telling you that, hey, learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, TypeScript right now, and you go and try to learn it and all of a sudden you hate a certain element of it and then you go out of development because you- you're trying to follow my roadmap and you think that is the right way thing to do, is a very... Dangerous thing for for people being gate kept from learning development. Do I think that TypeScript needs to be part of the early, the early stages of learning? I personally no. I don't think it needs to be. I think HTML, the three pillars: HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Learn how to build a cohesive application. If you're just new to development, you've never touched a programming language. Those are a perfect three three things to build layouts and add logic to those layouts. Add a framework in there like React or Svelte or Vue, perfectly fine as well, right? Right after you kind of learn the the fundamentals. Having said that, again, (laughs) the Play Devil's Advocate, TypeScript, if you want to be good at the fundamentals of programming, if you want to have your skills transferable, like let's say that you just want to learn Programming in general, and you want to maybe sometime do like data visualization, or sometime do maybe some Python scripting. Python's a bad example because it's also not really strongly typed. But uh, if you want to at some point be more than just a web developer, let's say, if that's your goal right from the get go, then maybe it makes sense to use TypeScript right away. It's not like TypeScript changes everything all of a sudden. TypeScript is depending on the rules that you set, because you can set the rules is a additive thing that you can add to your code. So you can write JavaScript in TypeScript and it still works. It's just like a lot of people will say like, why would you do that? Well, it's a great way to introduce yourself to something like TypeScript without giving you the rigid boundaries of having to type every single little thing that you're doing, right? So instead of giving yourself those rigid boundaries of being having to type every variable, every function, every return type, and every constructor and all that, adding it into your project and starting to type and starting to understand what typing even is, right? I'm not going to get too far into it, but it's essentially like giving your variables a, a way for them to know what's going to be assigned to them. So if you have a variable that is supposed to be assigned a, a number because you need to multiply that number down the line, you're going to assign the type of number to that variable. And then if you ever try to assign a, a string to that variable it'll give you an error inside of your code without you having to run it. And then you'll know that, hey, I'm doing something wrong here. So it's a way to kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself. No, I... (laughs) Damn it. it, No. (laughs) It's a way way to make sure that you have... your, Your code is being run in the proper way. And especially when you're working in a team, this is where TypeScript becomes very important. When you're working in a team and you're passing code off to people... It makes it very easy for them to be like, oh, these variables are supposed to be numbers, integers, strings, uh, booleans, or functions, or whatever. Like, they know right away. And then they can assign them properly, or they can troubleshoot it properly, or they can expand on it properly. So, I know this doesn't fully answer your question, but I don't want to fully answer your question because everyone is different. When you're learning, if you try, like, let's say you try to learn TypeScript in the beginning, and you freaking hate it, get rid of it. It's a more important to find what motivates you to continue learning rather than find the perfect path to learn everything exactly how everyone should learn it and burn out and, you know, hate development process. Find what you like to learn. Like if it's, if it's just JavaScript initially and you don't want the extra added thing, you'll learn TypeScript eventually if you, if you get there, right? When you need it. I don't think that's going to be too much of a problem as long as you can establish that motivation to learn.
1: All right. I, uh, I mean, a good answer. Uh, I don't use TypeScript, so I don't have much context, but I mean, Mike's right in that if you're learning something and, you know, part of it really sucks, I mean, sometimes it'll, you know, be horrible forever, but if you remove it, cause if you can, kind of like with, like if you're learning HTML and CSS together and you just can't wrap your head around HTML and so CSS really sucks, it might be worthwhile to cut out that CSS for a bit, really get your HTML down and then go back and Slowly add the CSS and maybe it'll be a lot better. Stuff like that. Very good tips for learning. But final question here for this episode. So this question is from Costanza Casulo. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Why are some developers on Twitter and on the web in general always talking about new technologies like Bulma, uh, excuse me, Bulma CSS, uh, Tailwind, uh, when in fact the reality is that most companies, including the one where I'm an intern, use WordPress and jQuery? So my opinion on this is actually that this is due to marketing. So more people will be Googling uh, and will be interested in learning about the latest thing like Web3, Tailwind CSS, stuff like that. The Google searches for older and established technologies are typically more specific to a particular problem in my experience that people are having or looking up a spe- maybe the latest version to download. So for example, if WordPress has like some weird bug where it does something, People will be looking up WordPress and there'll be tons of searches for WordPress, but WordPress is not the hot new thing that people are going to be Googling. When people Google WordPress, there might be a bunch of results, but realistically, again, in my experience, people are going to be Googling that particular thing. Hey, this weird bug happened. How do I fix this? Hey, you know, WordPress, red screen. The screen went red. We don't know what's happening. Why is this this happening? Those type of things. Now, this sort of search pattern, in my opinion, drives people to be more interested in newer technologies on social media because it's new and fresh. It's something brand new. They can talk about it, and because social media is very, very quick and moves very quickly – because there's always something new and cutting edge, the people that will be constantly tweeting and stuff like that will constantly switch to this, you know, this next thing, this next thing. You see it with phone reviewers. They don't talk about the S10 anymore, even though the S10 is a totally viable phone. They don't talk about the S10 anymore. They're on what? The S22 or whatever it is. That's what they're talking about. And so they move quickly, go move, 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 move. So... You know, whereas if you tweeted about, let's say WordPress basics daily, a lot of people would already know them and keep scrolling on. That's not saying that's not viable content. I'm sure you could be successful, you know, talking about WordPress in certain ways, whatever. And there's different ways to, you know, kind of cut out a little bit of a niche in, in many different things. So I'm not trying to belittle any of that, but just generally speaking, in terms of like flipping through when, something is brand new people are going to be going nuts for it like people are freaking out right now about elden ring the video game people are going nuts about that but then in a few weeks it won't be that it'll be something else and that's just like slowly what happens but yet there's still elden ring creators so that's sort of my uh my two cents on that where the the people that are the influencers, whatever, people that are tweeting and talking, they're talking about the latest thing and they're always jumping to the next latest thing to quickly go through it. And this also plays into the annoyance factor. So for example, when topics are repeated over and over and over again, like NFTs lately, right? People get annoyed and then they want to see new things in their timeline. So even though Mike and I, for example, we just did that big conversation on web one, two, three, and all that, just because we did that big conversation, you know, doesn't mean that people weren't annoyed by that. So what, what happens is, is people will constantly see web one, two, three, or they'll see NFTs constantly in their timeline and they just start scrolling by. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I know, I know. Like, I know what that is. I know what that is. I don't need to keep seeing it. I don't need to keep seeing it. So by keeping things always on the cutting edge from a marketing perspective, you're keeping people engaged in general. Again. There's niches for everything. There's content that people will always find creative ways to do content on things. You know, there's tons of guides and stuff you could write on WordPress and I'm sure be successful, those type of things. Absolutely. But in general, when you're talking about scrolling down a timeline, in my experience, the latest thing usually, not always, but usually gets quite a bit of clicks or at least will be have a tendency to get more clicks.
2: Yeah, I think, I think you kind of nailed it. I don't, I don't know if there's much more to say because really it's always about the new shiny thing, right? Like we're talking about spelt JS. It's the new shiny thing. We're talking about solid JS, the new shiny thing. Like whatever comes out new, that's what the influencers or the people that are constantly in the community will want to talk about because it's new. Like we, there's everything that's been, everything's already been said about WordPress. There's nothing more to say to it about it. It's been around. It's great. It's solid. Whatever. So there's still some people talking about it, but it's a low, it's a small number of people. But every, anything new that comes out, there's new things to say. There's new things to dive into. Like, oh my god, this thing does this differently. Does this differently. So as soon as people start talking about it, other people start using it. Other other people that like to talk about things will jump on that bandwagon and start talking about it, and it'll snowball in, into an external, externally seeming like everyone's using it. But the reality, like the person in the in the in the question said. The reality is, is that it's really just a very small amount of people that are even like. There's a very small percentage of developers that are even on Twitter, or on Instagram, or whatever. That's a very tiny amount of percentage. The majority of developers are sitting there and building. They're sitting there and working in a company that they, they don't have a choice of what technology they use. That's the majority. So it, it's not it's not this like it's not to say that you shouldn't listen to them to the people that are talking about new technology because. For me, it's interesting. That's why I like to talk about it. That's why I like to try it out. There's certain things you can gain from learning about this stuff. Like if you're in a meeting with like in a meeting where decisions are being made internally in a company and you had your ear to the ground, you could actually influence that based on the knowledge that you gain from that. That's happened to me, that's happened to other people. Like that's how that's how stuff goes. But it's a very small percentage, right? Like a very small percentage of people are able to influence those decisions. So at the end of the day. The reality is the technologies that have been around for five to 10 years are going to be used more often than the technologies that have been around for a year, even though those technologies are talked about way more.
1: Yeah, and 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 kind of going back to my Google thing, you know, there, there's I'm sure there's people out there that are saying, thinking, you know, hey, there's a lot of SEO stuff you could do with WordPress because it's an older project. Absolutely, you know, you could probably have a really successful guide, stuff like that. But those are kind of the more specific searches. Those are the searches that people – are kind of going for like that, you know, oh my 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 whole site was working and all of a sudden I got a red screen. What's wrong? Those type of things. So people are going to be searching for that, but they're not going to be searching for that, if you will, in a timeline. You don't search for your solution usually in a timeline. The timeline is more or less for entertainment or a quick check-in, or you want to read the latest news, or you want to see the latest uh, take on something, but you don't want, you don't necessarily need to see like a guide there. So the timeline is always. The timeline's always different. It's always interesting. And you'll you'll notice what I mean if you go to a site and you like the site for a particular reason, maybe you like a particular article, and then you stay on that site, the site's gonna jump around within a niche, let's say, but there's gonna be stuff in there that they're not gonna necessarily tweet about a bunch, but they may write an article on because the searches will drive enough traffic to it, but it's not really like a timelineable thing, if that makes sense. So well, that that does conclude our Q&A episode, and I hope that you uh, enjoyed that. I know that uh, we were long-winded answers on a bunch of the questions, and uh, hopefully that gives you a whole bunch of details and a whole bunch of that. I will be including links uh, to the resources that I use for the Web 2 and 3 and 1 uh, definitions from Investopedia. I'll also include um, – hopefully I'll include links to the various uh, Twitter profiles of the people that uh, – maybe I'll just include links to the tweets. Um, so you can go and like check out what the person wrote and if there's any responses or check out the person's profile, whatever for anyone that wrote in. So thank you for the to the people that wrote in, uh wrote in some questions. And uh remember that if you want to support episodes like this, you can go check us out on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML things, and many thanks to our three dollar tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on youtube.com slash rabbitworks JavaScript. Garrick from local path computing and web design on localpathcomputing.com, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via BlueBlackDigital.com, Christmas self-made Web Designer via self made web designer.com tim from the web hacker via the web hacker.com dl ford from dl4.io bib hashtag from block media via nineblockmedia.com. jason from geek life radio via geekliferadio.com. michael curie from mc web studio via mcwebstudio.ca magnus from yes web via yes jeff from twitter via at the jeff McHale and uh as well so Edubloxians that's game design for kids edubloxians.com Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off.
0: You've been listening to HTML, all the things podcast Signing off.